Welcome to Harper Audio Presents. This is Sean McManus with Harper Audio. I recently spoke with Wally Lamb, author of We Are Water, available in paperback August 12, 2014. We Are Water is a sweeping epic novel from one of America's most beloved writers. It pulls you into the emotional center of each richly drawn character. Wally Lamb has dug deep into the complexities of the human heart to explore the ways in which we all live, love, and find meaning in our lives. Wally Lamb is the author of four previous novels, including the New York Times and national bestseller, The Hour I First Believed, and Wishin' and Hopin', a best-selling Christmas novella. His first two works of fiction, She's Come Undone, and I Know This Much Is True, were both number one New York Times bestsellers. I had the privilege of sitting with Wally Lamb to discuss We Are Water, coming out in paperback August 12th, 2014. But first, let's listen to a selection from the audiobook read by Wally Lamb. Despite my initial resistance to the idea, I'm staying rent-free at Vivica's place in North Truro for the month, hoping that a Cape Cod retreat might allow me, after a summer's worth of drifting and wound-licking, to anchor myself, figure out how to shed my bitterness, forgive myself and others, and start over, orchestrate a reinvention I guess you'd say. 30 days has September. (laughs) It's a tall order. My game plan, once I survive this hideous holiday traffic and get settled in, is to eat healthy, cool it on the drinking, exercise. I'll jog and journal every morning and then bike to the beach for an afternoon swim. After dinner, I'll read and research. Google phrases like, new professions after 50, and change career paths. But with sharks in the water, doesn't sound like I'll be doing a whole lot of swimming. Of course, there's always the placid bayside, but what I want is turbulence, body surfing along the crest of the five or six-foot swells and getting roughed up a little by the waves I misjudge, the ones that, instead of carrying me, crack against me. I've been hoping that the wildness of the water might somehow both cleanse me of my failings as a university psychologist and, well, baptize me. But as what? Well, thank you for sitting down with us, Wally. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Sean. So I just wanted to start um, by talking about We Are Water first. All of your other novels are written from the first point of view, and in We Are Water, it kind of encompasses a lot of different perspectives. Was, was there one that you found more difficult writing, one that you found were more comfortable writing? Uh, and if you can just expand on that a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, you know, I almost always write in first person. I think for me, uh, what the, re- the reason I like doing that is because I can, almost as an actor, um, goes into a role, becomes that person. Um, I like to do that when I'm writing, sitting there at my computer. Uh, as far as this one goes, probably, well, I know I started with Orion, uh, who was one of the two main characters, and um, he was not that difficult to get into his head. Um, the one that was most difficult was Kent, uh, who is a pedophile, and uh, he, um, he was uncomfortable to write in, in that persona, uh, and yet... I needed to go there uh, because I needed to understand his motivation. Uh, he's, uh, he doesn't show up until later in the novel, but he's responsible for a lot of the conflict in the novel. Okay. 
that's actually it was my next question. So thank you for addressing that right away. Uh, and how did you decide what characters needed their own voice um, compared to other characters that come in throughout the, the book? Well, you know, for me, it's not a, a strategy. I go in into my writing room, and whatever is going to happen that day happens. Uh, sometimes I'm envious of writers who have the whole thing outlined and, <laughs> and are writing toward a preconceived ending, but it's not that way for me. I know that Orion and Annie, they were the first characters uh, whose you know, persona I was uh, I was dealing with, uh, persona, I'm not sure, <laughs> I was dealing with. Uh, but uh, then their three adult children began to speak, and I hadn't planned that at all, but once, uh, once they started opening their mouths, uh, in a way it was sort of like, uh, you know, I, I, I followed them and, uh, and learned so much more about the family dynamic through their experiences. You know how families are, you know, yeah, everybody has their own take on, you know, family history. And what, there was eight points of view, or was there nine? Yeah, there were eight different eight. points of view. Mm-hmm. And some of them uh, just show up for a single chapter, and some of them are, are followed through a number of chapters. In the audiobook of We Are Water, Harper Audio cast eight different individuals, and you were one of them. Yeah, um, that was so much fun to do, Sean. I, uh, I worked with a, a wonderful um, engineer and producer named uh, Zane Birdwell, and uh, so I was doing my part. I was playing Orion in the studio, uh, as did the other, the other actors. And then we all got together uh, at uh, a wonderful bookstore called Book Court in Brooklyn. And, uh, and, and we gave a reading, a uh, big turnout, and it was so much fun to work with the other actors and to see them and hear their, their live performances. And of course, the, the grand master of audio work, uh, George Goodell, has a part in this, and, uh, and he was the MC at this event. It was a really special afternoon for me. Well, you did a great job, and you might be giving George run for his money. <laughs> maybe, maybe a side career after writing, you can be an audio narrator. Hardly. <laughs> but you know, I, I know a lot of writers who are uh, kind of shy in person, and uh, don't like uh, the you know they like to write they don't like to necessarily go out and do the book tour thing, but I love that kind of thing for me because I'm drawing on my past career as a teacher more than I am as a writer and so you know I I love to I love the interplay with audiences and the, and the chance to meet people. I know that something near and dear to your heart is your writing workshop with um, incarcerated women in prisons. Um, how has that affected your writing, and did it have any direct effect for, for We Are Water? Yeah, it certainly did. I've been at York Correctional Institution, which is a fancy name for York Prison, uh, for about 16 years. Uh, I meant to go there one time as a favor to somebody, uh, but I go back over and over again because it's humbling uh, to be among the women who are doing their, serving their time uh, for the for their felony convictions, and they almost always like to write autobiographically. Now, one of the things that a lot of women have in common, women who have been imprisoned, uh, is that there is um, incest and sexual abuse in their past history, um, a lot of them when they were kids. And so for years, 16 of them really, I've been on the receiving end of those kinds of stories. Um, and so as far as a direct effect that it had on We Are Water, I became curious, okay, here is the, here is the victim's standpoint. 
um, that I'm pretty well aware of. Uh, you know, the MOs of, the, of, of these guys, um, usually guys who, um, who do this, this kind of thing to kids. But, um, but I wanted to get in the head of the perpetrator uh, to find out who he was. And when I say I wanted to, I both wanted to and didn't want to. Um, but I learned a lot uh, through writing as Kent. And one of the things that I was able to do, you know, I, I of course give a lot of feedback to the writing of the women, but uh, I also get feedback from them. And so when I was writing this novel, uh, occasionally I would go in and I, I would read from Kent's point of view um, just to get their reaction. So, um, and, and some of them were uncomfortable uh, with it, but they gave me some direction as well. And I guess to touch on a question earlier, when, when you say when you start to write, you didn't know that you were going to take on this amount of point of views. Did you know going in that it was going to be Orion? And did you know that you were going to be writing as Kent? Or did, that, did you get to that part and just say, okay, I, I need to c- confront this? Yeah, uh, the latter. Um, I did not have a plan to write uh, from the point of view of Kent. But uh, I was at, when I was writing as Annie... I could see that she was still so traumatized by these things that had happened to her when she was a kid, and uh, that he, in a sense, was taking up real estate inside her head throughout. Uh, and her, you know, she hadn't seen him since she was pulled out of her home and uh, and brought into the uh, you know the DCF uh, service. But he almost demanded to sort of get back on the scene uh, because, in his mind all was forgiven, and that was long ago, and so forth, and he had no uh, understanding of how traumatized that she was. Huh. What was We Are Water inspired by? Was there any other inspiration, or was it just your, your work at the correctional facility? No, actually there were two antecedents, uh, both uh, from my hometown of Norwich, Connecticut. One was a devastating flood that I remember very vividly from 1963, I was, I think, about 12 years old, and uh, the, the floodwaters came perilously close to our house, uh, and uh, I remember reading all the newspaper accounts after the, after the flood, and um, they were, the one that stayed with me the longest is the story of uh, three little boys who were rescued. Their, their family, uh, their mother and father, thought they would outrun the water. They had you know, just a, a few minutes advance warning that it was coming. Um, but they were not able to outrun the water, and the father and mother and an upstairs neighbor, a 19-year-old kid, um, took those three little boys and tried to rescue them, get them up in a tree uh, above the water line. And um, that did happen. These, uh, these boys were ages four, two, and one was a, an infant, a newborn. And um, the father and the neighbor were up in the tree receiving the kids, and the mom... Um, was handing them up, and um, the water came and took her away, and she she drowned. Um, while I was writing this novel, just when I started, actually, um, I was put in touch with those three little boys who are now in their fifties, wow. and uh, and so you know we collaborated quite a bit. One of those boys, uh, Tom Moody, wrote the the nonfiction account of the flood of 1963, and uh, of course I fictionalized. And then the other antecedent is a guy, uh, Ellis Ruley, who was an African-American outsider artist who grew up in the 50s. He died under mysterious circumstances. Some people 
claimed that it was a racially motivated murder. Other people claimed that it was an accident. Um, but he couldn't sell paintings in his own lifetime, although he painted obsessively. But then uh, he was discovered posthumously, as sometimes happens. Right. And uh, so he becomes the template for a character in the novel called Josephus Jones. So those are two of the, the tributaries that led into the river of the novel. <laughs> so I guess we'll move on to some more general questions yep. about how you write. And, and that's my first question. Where, where do you write and do you have any writing rituals or superstitions? I always find it so interesting to hear. And, and every author is different. I mean, some sit down, they know exactly, they lay everything out. And like you said, you kind of just jump into a book and see where it takes you. Mm-hmm. Um, so any rituals, superstitions, anything like that? Yeah, I, for one thing, I'm an early riser naturally. I've always been. And uh, I find that I get my best writing done in the first half of the day. I like to get up and uh, get some exercise in, get the blood flowing, and uh, grab a little something for breakfast and then go down to my writing area. Um, I pretty much write these days in uh, a finished-off basement in our home. I used to have a separate office because, you know, our kids were, you know, up and around and, <laughs> you know, running through the office and so forth. Uh, but these days it's, it's a lot more quiet, so it's just, just me and, and this great view of the outside. It's, I see deer, I see owls and that kind of thing. Um, I have several, when I start the day, my writing day, I have a number of procrastination rituals. Uh, I don't, I don't go <laughs> just like everyone else. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't go gung ho into it. I um, I have to sort of lure myself into it by seeing where the story will take me next. I have a lot of tchotchkes around in the office. Um, I my work is lots of times linked to um, ancient myths, archetypal stories. That's not necessarily going to be uh, obvious to the reader. It's only for me to sort of, you know, guide me. And uh, so I have the, uh, the Greek gods and goddesses uh, in plastic figurine form. Uh, they're sitting on my windowsill, uh, and I, I, look, I look at them every morning when I start. Um, I say a, a little gratitude prayer, and, um, and I begin to see where, where the day is going to take me. Huh. Great. And what was the one book... Um, either when you were a child or when you were younger, that really sparked kind of the, the writer in you? A number of them. Um, I remember when I was just, I don't think I was able to read yet. I remember being sitting on the, on the floor of the children's library and looking at the pictures of uh, The Black Stallion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I just loved that book. I can still very vividly remember those pictures. Of course, I was able to read it a, little, a couple of years later. <laughs> Um, when I was uh, when I was in elementary school, I loved the work of a of a writer. I think he was the illustrator too. His name was Robert McCloskey. It was a kind of a humorous series of books about a character named Homer Price. Uh, and uh, later on, uh, one of the signature books for me was Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, and I not only read that when I was a teenager, but when I was a high school teacher. Uh, I taught it and, you know, uh, had, had my students read it. And uh, that's a book that always gave dividends to the kids. They read it because they wanted to, not because they had to. And, uh, you know, it's a great, uh, for somebody who was going to become a writer, which didn't happen for me until I was about 30 years old, uh, it, was a, it was a great springboard into it. Um, because I had been an English teacher, 
I would, you know, perennially assign different books um, and then, you know, prepare them. And so I began to see after, you know, two, three years that the stories were familiar enough so that I began to not only prepare the lessons but also see, oh, I, would, I guess I would call it the architecture of the book and how it pieced together, you know, in terms of plot and character development, that kind of thing. And when did you start writing? I mean, you weren't published until you were 30, but were you... I mean, just writing from when you were a child or at the age of 30, you said, you know, I'm going to write a, a best-selling novel. <laughs> yeah, I kind, of, I kind of fell into it. Uh, I, uh, I certainly had no uh, fantasies about bestsellerdom. I didn't even think I was ever going to get published. Uh, <laughs> but uh, when I was a kid, um, I didn't love to read. I didn't mind reading, but I didn't, I, I didn't gravitate uh, toward it. I wasn't, um, I wasn't one of these kids who's got a book and, you know, that he's reading all the time, um, but I was always drawing, uh, and my I have a very sort of visual um, orientation, and I think that was good preparation for me once I did discover that I wanted to be a writer. But I can, unlike a lot of the writers that I know, I can remember vividly the day that I um, that I started writing fiction. Um, and that was the day that our first son was born, and I was 30. Uh, Jared was born on uh, Memorial Day in 1981, and I was up all night with my wife in the delivery room, went home to grab a quick shower and call the relatives uh, once the baby was born, and I didn't even think of it as a character, but um, you know, there was this sort of voice going on in my head while I was in the shower, <laughs> And I just had an impulse to write down what that voice said, you know, those couple of sentences. And then I forgot about it. And then later that summer, while I was cleaning off my work desk at home, I found these couple of scribbles that I had written down. And I sat down and I just, that was my beginning. Uh, it turned into a short story, you know, several drafts later. And that was my first publication. And, um, and then my third short story that I ever wrote um, got bigger and bigger and bigger, and then eventually became my first novel, She's Come Undone. Wow, that's a great story. We'll fall back onto the audiobook right now. Um, if you had a choice of actor or actress, for that matter, to narrate the story of your life, who, who would it be? And I know it could be George Goodell, because he did an amazing job, but feel free to pick anyone. Gosh, if I could, if I could get well. First of all, I don't think my life is that interesting to uh, uh, that it would ever become an audiobook. I don't. I'm not really inclined to write uh, autobiographically, at least not at this point in my life. Um, but um, George would be right at the top of the list, uh, <laughs> and I think he would add a little gravitas to, <laughs> to the real Wally, as he always does. Yeah. <laughs> if you could have dinner with one author, dead or alive, who would it be? Charles Dickens. I admire his stuff so much. I would um, I would ask him about his character development. I would ask him what comes first for him. Is it plot? Is it is it character? Is it conflict? Um, I would I, and I would ask him how he started and why he started. Another uh, more recently uh, deceased author uh, who was up in the pantheon for me is John Updike, uh -huh. and I actually had the opportunity to meet him, you know, one of my literary heroes, and I chickened out on it. I was a, a new author at the time, and I was at a trade show uh, for booksellers, and he was there. He had a new novel coming out, 
and I was in the line to get my copy of his new novel autographed, and there was the line was about maybe 25, 30 people uh, deep, and I would get close to him, you know, three or four people away from him, and then I would chicken out and go to the back of the line, <laughs> and I did this two or three times, and then finally I just, I couldn't do it, I couldn't do it, I didn't want him to be fallible, I didn't want to be human, I just, I, I loved his, particularly his short stories, uh, you know, his earlier work, um, that really for a young writer, um, they were very instructive as far as how to write fiction, huh. and um, so I didn't, uh, I, I didn't take the opportunity, and of course now, <laughs> that so opportunity is gone. <laughs> and you, so you never spoke to him? Or? Well, I did I did meet him once after that, several years later. Oh, okay. And I told that story to him about <laughs> getting to the back of the line again and again. I thought he would find it amusing, but he just, I think, was kind of weirded out by it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the last question I have, and it's a very difficult question, so I'm not sure if you have an answer for it, but... What's the one question that you've never been asked? I mean, you've done so many uh, interviews and, and podcasts and events. What, what's one thing? Do you ever walk away saying, oh, I wish they asked me that one question that I could really knock out of the park? Um, uh, nothing is coming to, coming to mind, but <laughs> I will tell you about the one question that I received in a Q&A several years ago that I'm still working on the answer for. Uh, a woman stood up in the in a Q&A at, at, at some bookstore when I was touring, and she said to me, this was really out of left field, she said, if there were to be a Mount Rushmore with women's faces on it, whose faces would you want carved into that rock? And the first person I thought of was Aretha Franklin. <laughs> and of course, uh, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been trying to answer that, you know, what four faces of, uh, of what four women would I, uh, would I want? Uh, in that in that female version of uh, of Mount Rushmore, I, actually I think it's a good idea. I think we should have a, yeah, a, a Mount Rushmore for women. But uh, but I'm uh, I I haven't come up with my final list yet. <laughs> what would be what would be the author Mount Rushmore? Would Dickens? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, the uh, Dickens would be there. Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, I think I would put Flannery O'Connor there. She's another writer that I I learned. You know, so incredibly much from, huh. um, and um, I think maybe Joseph Campbell, uh, who was a an anthropologist more than a uh, he was not a fiction writer, but he studied the ancient myths of the world and the similarity between uh, cultures in their in their ancient tales, from Inuit to African to right. the classical Greek and Roman and stuff. What do they all have in common? And why were they written? What did people need from those stories? Why did they need them to be told? So I put old Joseph Campbell up there, too. It's a good Rushmore. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you uh, for sitting down with us, and um, look forward to reading the paperback version of Rear Water on August 12th. Thanks, Sean. I had a good time, too. Thanks. Now, let's listen to a selection from the We Are Water audiobook, read by George Goodall. I understand there was some controversy about the coroner's ruling concerning Josephus Jones's death. What do you think, Mr. Agnello? Did he die accidentally, or was he murdered? Murdered. I can't really say for sure, Miss Arnofsky, but I have my suspicions. The black community was convinced that's what it was. 
Two Negro brothers living down at that cottage with a white woman? That would have been intolerable for some people back then. White people, you mean? Yes, that's right. When I got the job as director of the Statler Museum and moved my family to Three Rivers, I remember being surprised by the rumors that a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan was active here. And it's always seemed unlikely to me that Joe Jones would have tripped and fallen headfirst into a narrow well that he would have been very much aware of, a well that he would have drawn water from, after all. But if a crime had been committed, it was never investigated as such. So, who's to say? The only thing I was sure of was that Joe was a uniquely talented painter. Unfortunately, I was the only one at the time who could see that. Of course, now, long after his death, the art world has caught up with his brilliance and made him highly collectible. It's sad. Tragic, really. There's no telling what he might have achieved if he had lived into his forties and fifties. But that was not to be. You've been listening to Harper Audio Presents, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. We hope you'll join us again. Thank you for listening.